1: And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
2: You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at PurdueGlobal.edu.
0: From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. For the next two weeks, we're going to try something a little different. Over the past year, I've been having conversations with experts across the ideological spectrum about a topic that I care a lot about, the freedom of speech. I am extremely excited to share them with you now. And one positive side effect of being able to do so is that it will give a chance for our hard-working producer and showrunner here at Deep Background to have a little summer break. This episode in our free speech series is about cancel culture. The idea of quote cancelling someone is itself relatively new. One of the first times the word was used in this way was in the 1991 action movie New Jack City, I know I'm dating myself now, in which Wesley Snipes plays a drug lord and actually says it about his girlfriend.
2: Cancel bitch. <laughs> I'll
0: the idea of canceling someone then pretty slowly made its way into pop culture, first used in a humorous way, and then eventually more seriously. Osita Wanevu, a writer at the New Republic, wrote a really insightful article about this phenomenon called the Cancel Culture Con. He's been following the evolution of the term. I spoke to Osita back in February when the public debate around cancel culture was really gaining steam. Here's Osita's take.
3: A couple of years ago before cancel culture was a a phrase in circulation, you would see people on Twitter especially sort of ironically say that things had been canceled a pop star disappointed you in some way, or that person's canceled. There's a popular gif of um, celebrity on Twitter pointing to a coffee machine that had been broken and saying, ah, that's canceled now. You know, it was that kind of usage. And one thing that's interesting about that to me is the phrase political correctness originally emerged in a very similar way. People in the new left in the late 1970s began using it as a way of describing a kind of orthodoxy or political orthodoxy within their circles. Oh, it's a politically correct thing to believe X, Y, and Z. But then it got picked up by conservatives. Um, he used it earnestly to describe ideological tendencies on the left that they didn't like. So and I think in a very similar way we see now with cancellation, cancel culture, I, I think that kind of mirrors the way that that terminology has emerged.
0: That's totally fascinating. Can I just say as a purely linguistic matter, the reason this is so fascinating is when we think about appropriation of phrases, we're kind of acclimated to be thinking about cases where you have a term that is a racist term or a xenophobic term or some other form of bias, a homophobic term. And then the group that is subject to bias appropriates the term, repurposes it, and makes it a term of pride you know, the term queer is the sort of archetypal example of this, where this happened in my lifetime. When I was a kid, queer was solely, at least in ordinary discourse, a homophobic insult. And then it came to be taken over in the process of ACT UP and the movement against AIDS as a statement of pride. So it went from badness to self-appropriation, in this case, this is actually really fascinating. You're saying that the movement is the other way. It starts with an ironic self-description by the right. in-group that's sort of lighthearted and yeah. then comes to be, as it were, appropriated by the out-group, exactly. and then it gets reified as an actual thing. That's a great point that you're making right there.
3: That's certainly my understanding of the history of the phrase political correctness. And I think that's particularly interesting to me is that in that translation or in that appropriation by the right, you lose all of the irony. You lose the sense that when people originally used the phrase political correctness, they were saying something self-aware about themselves and their tendency to get carried away about certain things, right? It was an acknowledgement within those circles that some of the things that they believed or said, you know, were a little wacky, but they could be humorous about it Mm -hmm. and they're aware of it and they could criticize it. But when it moves over to the right, You don't just have the phrase shift over, but you lose the sense that you are talking about a group of people that is capable of self-criticism and is capable of acknowledging its own limitations. And you start believing in earnest that these are people who are wildly doctrinaire about crazy out there identity political beliefs with no sense of self-awareness. I think that's the thing that's so striking to me about that shift. And I I think that with cancel culture, There is also that self-awareness now where people will, partially as a reaction to the way that this has become a discourse, will sort of jokingly say they're now counseling somebody for making a particular joke that is like just over the edge, but not really that offensive.
0: There is, though, a serious use of it as well, right? I mean, so I, I completely buy what you're saying. And a huge number of the uses of cancel are clearly intended lightheartedly or right. ironically, and certainly when critics of cancel culture say that everyone has been canceled, right. part of the reason for that is that people are using the term sometimes in this lighter way. But there is some phenomenon of people on Twitter using the term non-ironically. Yes. What When do you see that getting used and what trends do you see in that usage?
3: I think that when Chappelle came out of this special, you know, it was a good example of this. People were offended by some of the things he said about transgender people and the jokes made by Michael Jackson. and I'm sure if you saw videos that were being posted on Twitter, on social media at the time, you'd see in the comments people saying, well, now Chappelle is canceled. And they'd they'd mean it, you know.
0: They didn't mean that the special would literally be canceled because it wasn't, but they may have meant that they would like that to be the case, or they may just have meant that they personally were canceling him in the sense that he was now out of their pantheon of comedians that they would listen to.
3: So it's really unclear, right? Like, I, I don't know that most of the people who use the term would say, well, now it Chappelle should literally be like the special should be pulled from Netflix and Chappelle should uh, be removed from all of his contracts. But I think it's most of the time it's people saying personally to them, as far as they're concerned, Chappelle is no longer good in their eyes. So you know that's that's it's a real thing and it's a real way that people use the phrase. I think one of the things, I guess the main thing really I'm trying to get at the piece is to what extent are we watching a sort of new Phenomenon in these critiques? Is it really the case that there is a new culture of criticism that's emerged that is uniquely and troublingly unsparing and unempathetic? Or is it the case that we are seeing forms of criticism that have always sort of been around translated into a new medium on social media? And that is sort of upsetting people's understanding of the line between creators and artists and their audience and journalists and their readers. And Are we basically just watching technology transform something that already existed into a new and unfamiliar and kind of scary-seeming novelty?
0: And your argument is that very much it's the latter, that we've always had you know people saying cancel my subscription or we've had people engaging in systematic criticism or saying you know such and such a person is outside the pale because of this or that view that they hold and that there's a kind of cancel culture panic going on out there is that a, a fair read of where you come down
3: i mean i certainly think so I, I start the piece talking about lenny bruce a very controversial comedian in his day who made a lot of jabs at powerful people and rubbed people the wrong way.
0: His use of language was also self-consciously designed to shock and to break taboos. He was breaking taboos, especially about swearing.
3: And he gained an audience for doing that. And he gained a lot of respect for doing that as somebody who, you know, was bringing First Amendment values to their fullest expression. But he was also basically persecuted by obscenity laws. And that was a time in which cancellation or what we sort of think of now as cancellation wasn't sort of just a purely social phenomenon or purely a matter of public opinion it was the law that if you said certain things you could lose your gigs or end up at a workhouse you know as he was sentenced to so I mean I think that in examining episodes like that and examples like his life it becomes very clear that like there's nothing particularly new about the act of saying that something is beyond the pale or offensive, obviously. There's not even something new necessarily about the public en masse congregating to say that a particular television program, a particular comedian, a particular article was wrong or bad or off the mark or offensive in some way. People used to send in letters, you'd have the Parents' Television Council dial up the FCC when they thought things on television that they didn't want their kids to see, et cetera. I think what particularly concerns people is sort of, it called a mob. Like it's the fact that you have the worst cases, maybe hundreds of people or thousands of people coming together and saying this joke, this TV program, this movie, whatever, is wrong in some way. Even that fact of people en masse coming together to criticize people, it's not an invention of the social media age. It used to happen. It's just the social media has made it particularly easy and particularly visible. You don't always see all the hate mail uh, that, that you know, would have used to flow into the magazine mailrooms. You know? That wasn't something that the public could look at and feel aghast about. But you do see tweets and comments. We'll be right back.
4: That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic.
0: Osita, I am very, very convinced by your argument that that kind of opposition is not new, but is just much more observable. But I've been really trying to come up with the most sympathetic account that I can of the form of the criticism. Mm -hmm. So let me try out the following hypothesis on you of the other side's view. And I'm not attributing this to any actual person who's criticizing cancel culture. This is just my attempt to reconstruct the best argument you could make on their side. The argument would be this, the distinctive form of criticism that one hears again and again and again today is that we should break down the distinction between the artist or the author or the maker, on the one hand, and the human being on the other side. That we should admit that we can't distinguish the dancer from the dance, and for that reason, when we see a moral failing in the person, we should respond by sanctioning the artwork that that person creates. So to take a concrete example, you know, if one is convinced that the allegations from many years ago against Woody Allen that he abused his daughter, an allegation that's important to note he was cleared of at the time. But if one came to believe that that allegation were true, one should therefore not watch any Woody Allen movies. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, that fits into the word cancel because it's not cancel the thing or argue against the utterance. Usually a human being is the direct object of the verb to cancel. Yeah. And so if that's what they're really upset about, I think one can have a very serious debate or argument about this because I'm not sure there's a clear, correct answer. I can see both sides of the argument. But that does seem to be some trend that is a little greater today than it was, say, 10 years ago. What do you think about that hypothesis?
3: See, I just don't know. Like, I think one of the things that's so hard about these conversations is that they're very hard to quantify. (laughs) It's very hard to bring any kind of empirical evidence to bear. Sure. on a lot of this stuff. But, you know, you can go back to Ezra Pounds and people talking about his anti-Semitism and the extent to which it may have, you know, it should influence the way you see his poetry. You can talk about Roman Polanski. These are conversations that people have had about art and artists for a very long time.
0: I think those are great examples. But the way I was taught those things, those were both taught as canonical people. So, you know, mm-hmm. the Norton anthology of English poetry, from which I was taught poetry at a a tender age, which influenced me, included all of the Ezra Pound poems one could want, including some of the ones that were anti-Semitic. And sure, a teacher might say, you know, gee, just so you know, he's got these terrible views and there are some people who think we shouldn't. But the the sort of canonical answer in the culture was, but you should certainly read the poems. Same with Polanski. I mean, he left, he had to leave the United States because of uh, indictment for statutory rape. And yet, I don't know too many people who studied film in a serious way who were told, don't watch Chinatown because of Roman Polanski's immorality. That's a canonical film. I agree that people have been debating this. They've probably been debating this since there was art. But I think that more serious people today are saying that the person is out based on their immorality or the immoral features of some of their artwork than was the case in at least the classical reception.
3: Maybe, I just don't know. Like The thing that I've been thinking about in this realm over the past couple of weeks, although it's a little bit of a different example, is Kobe Bryant. He's been the subject of many, many moving um, and loving tributes. Politicians have issued statements talking about how wonderful he was and all he did for the sport of basketball. But he's also somebody with had, who had a very serious allegation of sexual abuse level against him. And that hasn't really broken into... A lot of the conversation we've been having uh, since his death. In fact, the Washington Post reprimanded a reporter, I believe, on the afternoon it came down that he had died, for linking to an article mentioning this
0: case. So you're saying this is the opposite of cancel culture. This is this is the whitewashing culture. I have read things by feminists and others making the point that it's problematic that there's been this celebration of Kobe Bryant. But if your your point is that. No, the, the celebration, at least culturally, has substantially outweighed the criticism. I think you're unquestionably right about that.
3: I, mean, I guess the point I'm making is that we still have a very broad capacity to overlook the bad things that famous people have done, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that you would have to have a lot of evidence to suggest that, you know, we're now in this culture where any mark against you, if you're an artist or an athlete or an entertainer of some kind, is, is now... Much more damaging to your public perception than it would have been previously. I think there are certain kinds of things you can do. I think that the, the Bryant example, notwithstanding, I think people are much less lenient about sexual abuse now and allegations of sexism. Uh, I think people are obviously more sensitive about racism. But I don't know that people now, in general, are willing to sort of metaphorically burn books or paintings, or mm-hmm. sort of strike people from the historical record, as far as popular entertainment is concerned, for having done something wrong in the past. You know, I think that there's a different conversation now happening about historical figures.
0: That's certainly a related conversation. It is a related right? conversation, yeah. I mean, you know, one thinks of Calhoun's name being taken off of one of the Yale colleges, and there. It's not fair to say it was based on one thing that he did. It was based on the fact that the very thing that had gotten him recognition in the first place, namely his statesmanship in U.S. history, could not be disentangled from the position that he advocated at all of those moments, which was South Carolinian quasi-sovereignty in order to protect slavery. Right, And this sort of raises that it does seem kind of striking that the maybe this is stereotypical, but the mostly white conservative critics of quote-unquote cancel culture seem to be really worried that people of color or women are the ones who suddenly have the capacity to, as they imagine, shut down a certain kind of discourse. And that seems to be making folks very, very nervous in a way that might not have been the case when the question of access or who you would listen to was more broadly controlled by white elites.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the big shifts in cultural politics I've been fascinated by over the past several years. You have the people who in the 80s, I guess, would have been railing against offensive lyrics in hip-hop, now rebranding themselves as a movement, as the defenders of free speech, as the defenders of free expression against the overly censorious 20-something woke people on Twitter. And, you know, like, I, I don't know that if you go through the history of the conservative movements and examine the way that the movement responded to certain controversies and the way that they respond to speech controversies now, you're going to find like a natural sort of intellectual evolution to their current position. I think it's kind of a 180 that's happening for pretty obvious reasons. One of the things that was maddening to me about the campus political controversies that took up so much attention a couple of years ago was that there was so much writing about people at events, you know, shouting at a professor or a speaker or saying that a speaker shouldn't come to campus and so on. And you can have your view on whether or not that's a useful or meaningful form of protest. But there's always no writing at all about Republican state legislatures by law trying to prevent certain people from coming to certain campuses or trying to crack down on certain student movements. There was no conversation about that as a threat to free speech. You would imagine that actions by state government would be slightly more concerning than actions by five and a half liberal arts students in the Northeast, you know?
0: You're making a point that I think, first of all, I think it's absolutely correct that free speech has only become a rallying cry of conservatives in the last decade. And historically, conservatives were more statist. They were more in support of the state when it restricted speech, and they were also more committed to what they saw as moral judgment and made the argument typically that when a work of art or something else violated community morality, it ought to be appropriate to suppress it or or not to fund it. But I would just note the flip what I call the flip in the political economy of free speech has actually taken place on both sides. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's also true that in left of center circles, the knee jerk view for most of the 20th century was more speech is good. You know, the American Civil Liberties Union got its start as a really very far left organization, deeply embedded with socialism and even communism. And it gradually morphed into being a more general civil libertarian set of positions. But this was an alliance that was driven in part by the left's sense that the right controlled the institutions of the state and was interested in shutting them down. And so today, you know, when I teach my students and I I teach free speech, I teach First Amendment to my students, it's noteworthy that many students who see themselves as left of center are very skeptical about the power of free speech. And many students who are right of center see themselves as deeply committed to free speech, and it's nearly a 180 degree flip, yeah, 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 even from what it is when I started teaching this, you know, 15 years ago. So I've sort of watched this change happening in, in real time among my students, and I think they're reflecting a change that's happening more broadly in the society. So it, there's a lot of flipping to go around, you know, and I don't know whether it's hypocritical or not, it's definitely a transformation in how we think about these. So,
3: things. I mean, there are ways in which I think the left, I guess the campus left now is a little bit, frankly, better on speech than the previous iteration of the campus left back in the 80s and 90s, when you had the first sort of wave of political correctness controversies. And I say this because, and I'm interested in hearing your perspective on it, during that first wave, a lot of campuses were actively going about imposing speech codes. There were actual statutory efforts to prohibit people from saying certain things that were deemed offensive. That ultimately ended up in a lot of court battles. Now, I think the way that this discourse happens is almost exclusively within social circles. Students will say among themselves, these are the kinds of values that we want to uphold. This is the kind of speech that we don't think is okay. And it's it's much more informal debate. Whatever norms are being enforced now are not being enforced by dictat. It's being enforced by social dynamics, in some cases, group pressure. But it's not about somebody laying down the law administratively. Now, is it possible that that's because of the First Amendment jurisprudence that emerged out of that first wave? Maybe.
0: I have a competing theory about why. I mean, first of all, I think it's a super astute observation and really, really resonates with my own experiences for sure. And I was you know, a student in the very late eighties and early nineties on a campus. And I remember all of the intense debates about that. And you're totally right that those were about, you know, formal codification, and now it's about the informal. But my instinctive reaction to that change, and to be blunt, I hadn't thought of it before, I think it's a great point that you're making, is that it's because of the rise of social media. Mm -hmm. Much in the way that um, the question of where free expression lives used to be very much about the state and the private individual And or maybe by extension, the university, which might be private, but still functions as the state when you go to one. Mm -hmm. Now the big topic in free expression is really social media and what it means to have free expression in an era where all of the platforms have terms of service that include community standards that regulate what you can say. And so since today's students are genuine digital natives whose entire adolescent and post-adolescent lives have been completely structured around the idea that where the important expression happens is on social media. So I think it follows from that, that they accept non-state oriented modes of sanction and they accept, you know, let's all do it together on social media forms of sanction. And that may also be one of the things that scares the daylights out of an older generation of conservatives who say, oh my goodness, this phenomenon of collective judgment is itself the thing that's scary because it's not in the hands of the state. It's not in the hands of the people who run the institution. It's not in the hands of the quote unquote grownups or the traditional actors who exercise power. It's democratized, it's spread out, it's decentralized, and it has this social feature to it that grows out of social media. I think, I mean, I think I'm just saying your theory back to you yeah. to try to explain the phenomenon that you described. Yeah, so yeah. I try, I ascribe the theory to you, not not to me.
3: Sure. I mean, I I think it's, Anybody can be a gatekeeper of sorts now. The power to sort of align yourself with a particular constituency and define values amongst yourselves and enforce those values that's no longer just in the hands of people who belong to mainstream political constituencies or people who are within the existing racial or cultural religious majority— anybody can sort of develop a set of beliefs and values that they sort of, you can't really say impose on the rest of the world, but they can take jabs at people of prominence on the basis of those values in a way that they wouldn't have been able to 10, 20, 30 years ago, as you said, as a consequence of social media. And, you know, if you are a conservative... And not just a conservative, but if, if you're frankly a centrist liberal with a lot of respect for elite institutions, it is very understandable why you'd find that frightening. But I think that we should be clear in understanding what the actual risks of this kind of new discourse actually are. If we go around saying to ourselves that what's happening now can be half metaphorically, half not connected to Stalinism and the gulag and witch hunts. I think that we lose our sense of perspective when we draw those comparisons. If there is something to be critiqued about this new discourse, I think that we don't do ourselves any favors in understanding those things if we're constantly reaching for something else that is obviously so dramatically different, but has this I don't know, like rhetorical or emotional resonance when you reach for it. You know, you might not like being criticized on Twitter, but if you're comparing the situation to Nazi Germany, like you're not, you're not bringing any clarity to what's actually happening.
0: Sina, I just want to really thank you because to me, your cultural critical analysis here is terribly powerful because you're not responding to the critique by just saying, well, that's a right-wing critique and the left is better, nor are you saying that, you know, the right is entirely tilting at a windmill. Instead, you're stepping outside of it and evaluating the phenomenon that's actually in play and asking us to think about how that phenomenon is actually cashed out in terms of who has the capacity to do what and how power is handed out and how communication actually happens. And that, to me, is tremendously clarifying. And I I just want to say thank you. And I hope we can talk again in the future as you continue to unpack and explain other kinds of cultural phenomena. And I'm going to look out for your stuff and I'm really grateful to you.
3: Well, thank you so much. This is truly wonderful. Thank you.
0: Osita raised some really important questions around the social mechanism that's driving what is known as cancel culture. He points out that in almost every situation, those calling for the cancellation of a person or a figure or an idea are doing so themselves, not through the exercise of official governmental power, or indeed through attempts to create an institutionalized mechanism of censorship, but rather in their own expression of their own beliefs and ideas. True, it may happen that institutions respond in individual cases, So it's not as though the movement is disconnected from institutional reality, but the calls themselves are not calls for a fundamental set of institutional changes in most instances. That has major implications when we try to puzzle out exactly what free speech principles should tell us about calls for cancellation or the phenomenon of cancellation itself, assuming that phenomenon even exists, as Osita reminds us. Our Freedom of Speech series will continue next week. Until then, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with mastering by Jason Gambrell and Martin Gonzalez. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. I also write a regular column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And one last thing. I just wrote a book called The Arab Winter, A Tragedy. I would be delighted if you checked it out. If you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. You can always let me know what you think on Twitter. My handle is Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background.